This is the Thank You 72 podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding Badgers from Wisconsin's 72 counties. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you could join us. Our mission is to share the stories of amazing University of Wisconsin alumni and how they've changed the world. In this episode, an extraordinary conversation with Dr. Ann McKee. Anne grew up in Appleton and earned her zoology degree from UW-Madison in 1975. She has gone on to become the world's foremost expert on the degenerative brain disease known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. CTE is triggered by repetitive blows to the head and is most commonly found in combat veterans and athletes participating in boxing, hockey, and America's most popular sport, football. CTE causes symptoms such as cognitive impairment, depression, memory loss, and aggression. The condition is currently untreatable and only detectable after death when the brain is examined. I'd like to share more about Anne's story and her amazing research into CTE. Dr. McKee's honors include the Distinguished Alumni Award from the Wisconsin Alumni Association, as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award from the uh, Alzheimer's Association. She's also made Time Magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people. And I understand, Dr. McKee, you've also added a couple other honors to your list recently, correct? Yes. I uh, Just this Monday was elected into the National Academy of Medicine which is a very high honor. Congratulations. I want to welcome you so much. Thank you for participating in this podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Dr. McKee, we mentioned you're a Wisconsin native. You were born in Appleton, 1954. Tell us a little bit about your life growing up and how you came to the University of Wisconsin. Wow. Um, So I grew up in Appleton. I was the youngest of five children. I was youngest by a long shot. Uh, I was a surprise, surprise baby. Um, And all my brothers and sisters uh, went to Lawrence University, which is the local college. My dad actually was on faculty at Lawrence University. Uh, And so there was every expectation that I would go to Lawrence. Uh, but have, having lived there my whole life, having been two blocks from the school, I really wanted to experience more. I really wanted to get out in the world, and uh, I had to really struggle with my dad to talk him into paying the, the tuition for the University of Wisconsin. He was very reluctant, and he made me uh, actually do a year at Lawrence University first, uh, but then I, I got my wish, and I came to the University of Wisconsin, where I was excited to come because uh, it was a time during the 70s of of a lot of disruption. There was a lot of questioning of authority. There were a lot of uh, demonstrations. I felt that the university was alive with possibilities, that I could would be exposed to all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of disciplines, all sorts of different people, uh, and I really wanted that exposure. So how did you convince your dad to let you come here? What was the turning point of that? Well, I have to say it did help that uh, I was an art major my first year in college. And I I had an epiphany towards the spring of that year. My my brother, my next oldest brother, was a doctor. And I I did have an epiphany. And I went in, I remember going into my dad's uh, room and saying, you know, Dad, I've been thinking about it, and I, I think I really want to become a doctor. And, of course, he was just beside himself with, with happiness. He, he was so he, uh, delighted that I made that decision. And so he was happy to support me going to the University of Wisconsin as a pre-med major. 
And so, of course, you grew up in Wisconsin, and like most of us, a devoted Packer fan. What, your dad played football and your brother, right? Both my brothers. I had two older brothers. Both played football. Uh, yeah, I, our, our family friend was the high school football coach. I, I learned how to play football. In the summers, we would have these pickup games uh, uh, of flag football. Uh, and I, I know that if I hadn't been born female, I would have been a football player, too. Hmm. So it's ironic that your life's work really then revolves around football in a way that I'm sure you had no idea it would. Yes, it's, it's, it's actually shocking that I work on the brains of football players. Uh, I am fascinated by brains. I was historically an enormous football fan. I was a huge Brett Favre fan. I used to listen to him on the radio in Boston, you know, the, after the game uh, conversations. I couldn't get enough. And, but, and I knew that they damaged their hips and sometimes their knees and had arthritis later in life. But until I saw my first case, that brain under the microscope, uh, I had no idea that they were damaging their brains. Uh, and that, that was extraordinary to me. It was shocking to see it in that first uh, football player who was 45 when he died. And uh, I just knew it was something that I had to tell people about and that we had to know more about because uh, it was such a surprising finding. Yeah, we'll, we'll get more into kind of the, the, the process that took you there in a, in a second. But I think a question that, that really comes up a lot, and we want to talk about it right off the top here, was that it's not so much one hit, right? Is, is that kind of the misconception that it's not one or two or three or four concussions? It's the multiple hits that you're really looking at. Yeah, I mean, when we first started, we thought it was the concussions too. We we thought that it, you know, it was the concussions that could sometimes lead to this long-term neurodegeneration. But our studies then showed over and over it was the cumulative small hits, the little hits that the players play right through. They're seemingly unaffected. But if you endure thousands of those hits or hundreds of those hits, and, and most football players do experience hundreds per season. Uh, in fact, most football players in every position on every play experience a hit. Uh, it's the cumulative effect of those small hits that leads to this chronic deterioration. So let's go back in time a little bit. You, you graduated from UW-Madison. You went on to become a neuropathologist. You conducted groundbreaking uh, research in the field of Alzheimer's disease. And you were at Boston University, and, and CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, began to emerge. It's, it's, there's so many ironies in your life, I'm sure. One of them is probably that, it, that the first person really studied for this was a Wisconsin native, right? Rhinelander native, uh, University of Wisconsin grad, Mike Webster. Uh, Mike was a standout Badger, uh, was first team all Big Ten in 1973. He was drafted by Pittsburgh in the fifth round of the 1974 draft. You were here actually at the university when Mike was here. Did you ever see him play football? Uh, no, I never saw him play football that I can remember. Yeah. Uh, but we were here at the same time. Uh, there are a lot of parallels. Our, our family cottage is very close to Rhinelander. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange uh, synchronicity in this, in this life uh, that, uh, yeah, Mike Webster, very severely affected with the disease that I've now studied uh, almost nonstop for the last 12 years. 
tell us a little bit more about Mike. I know you weren't directly involved in his case, but that's what kind of started this whole thing. Right. right. I started out being uh, very interested in boxing. Uh, it was actually in the early 2000s. I I had been studying Alzheimer's disease, and uh, we had a, an individual camp come in who was a famous boxer, a world champion boxer, twice fought Sugar Ray Robinson for the title, uh, very well known in the Northeast. And uh, he developed a dementing condition, memory loss, cognitive changes, but also very bizarre uh, behaviors, very paranoid, belligerent, violent. Uh, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, but then it when I looked at his brain, uh, it was anything but. You, it was clearly not Alzheimer's disease. And more importantly, even though I'd been studying these, these diseases for some 20-odd years, very, very uh, obsessively, because I was absolutely fascinated by tau and the brain diseases of, uh, characterized by tau, I'd never seen this pattern before. And I, I found that just extraordinary. It's a very florid pathology. It, it circles around small blood vessels. It's very clustered in the brain. It, it doesn't affect the brain s smoothly. Uh, it really hits certain areas very hard. I'd never seen anything like it, so I became extremely fascinated with what happened to the brain after boxing. And then several years later, uh, after studying a, a few boxers, I had the opportunity to look at a football player. And what it just floored me was that uh, the first football player was 45 when he died. And if you study neurodegeneration, that's a disease process that affects people in their 70s, uh, 80s, 90s, sometimes their 60s, but 45 is, is just extraordinarily young. And uh, to see a football player who, with a very profound damage in his brain uh, at that age was uh, truly extraordinary. So in, in Mike Webster's case, he was 50 when, when he passed away, and for years the National Football League denied that there was any kind of relationship between head injuries and brain damage. In fact, the league at one point said that if a player sustained a concussion, they could go right back in that same football game. So fast forward uh, to 2008, and that's when you... That's when you did your first examination, right? I had seen the report on Mike Webster, uh, I, and I'd looked at the pathology. Uh, I wasn't sure it was the same disease. I, there just wasn't enough information in that early report for me to be certain, and so I was very, very curious uh, to, to look at the disease myself. Uh, but I remembered that report uh, uh, from Dr. Omalu and colleagues, and I was curious to see if it was the same. And then you know, it was, I didn't get the opportunity until a bit later. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a couple of years later. So um, what, when you looked at that first player's brain, what, what struck you? Like what was going through your mind as you were, as you were examining that? Well, you know, my brother and I are both doctors, and, you know, shop talk. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he was the doctor for several football teams, an ice hockey team, and we, we sort of traded stories. I think we were, you know, uh, so-and-so's got some uh, um, d difficulty with m movement. I wonder if it could be possibly related to pre previous history of of uh, football. It was something that, you know, and then there was that, the, the uh, San Francisco 49ers with the ALS. I mean, the, there were clusters of issues. Uh, so it was something I was curious about, he was curious about. And when we saw, when we saw, when I saw it under the microscope, uh, the first thing I did was show it to him. And uh, we both, are both, both of us uh, sort of had this, 
this, we felt this obligation. Uh, I remember saying, thinking, we've got to show this to the NFL because who's, who could believe this? But, but this, you know, players are at risk, and we need to understand more immediately. So before that 2009 Super Bowl, you held a news conference, right, in, in Tampa Bay. They were going to kick the game off at the stadium just down the street from where you were doing the press conference. And So what did you tell the media at, at that event? Well, uh, Ted Johnson was there, uh, Lisa McHale, who was the wife of Tom McHale, who had been one of my brain donors. Uh, we told them those stories. We told them about John Grimsley. We told them, we told them about uh, Tom McHale. And then uh, by that time, I'd also had the brain of Eric Pelly, who was an 18-year-old high school player. And his brain showed early signs of CTE. So we felt this was an extraordinary issue for public health, that we needed to raise awareness uh, so that we could do something about a potentially or entirely treatable disease. Uh, and so we had a press conference, uh, and it was attended by about four or five people. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was not well attended, and it looked as though the whole thing was going to be a, a gigantic bust. But you got some attention because just a few m- months later, right, the NFL gives you a call and says, hey, could you come over and present your findings to our concussion committee, right? That's right. To our mild traumatic brain injury, I got a call from Ira Kassen. Uh, I was very surprised to get this call, and I said, of course, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, and, um, and so it was a month or two later that I went to, what is it, Park Avenue in New York City and uh, presented my findings. And what was the reaction? Well, uh, I asked them ahead of time if it would be all right if I brought Chris Nowinski with me, who um, was a former professional wrestler. He's, he's a big, tall guy. And I thought, and they said, yes, you can bring him, but uh, uh, he's not allowed to say anything. And I thought, well, fine. That's a, you know, I just need the moral support of not being the only one in the room. And uh, it was, a, it was, it was a, well, for a, for a lifelong Packer fan, it was extraordinary to be, you know, you're in this big, beautiful building, and you go up to the top floor, and they've got the Lombardi statue there. They've got images of Super Bowl one and two. I mean, there's a part of you that's, you know, really absorbing the museum and the and the the, the, the you know the all of that that it entails. And then I was ushered into a room, a very large boardroom, which is you know very nicely appointed, and a lot of men. A lot of men around the table, uh, probably, I don't know, 12 to 15 men, uh, and uh, one woman, but she was taking notes. So it's me and, the, and these uh, uh, high-powered men. And uh, I started presenting my findings, and by now I'm a pretty well- uh, experienced neuropathologist. I've been on a lot of NIH committees. I, I've written a lot of papers. I was expecting them to at least consider my opinion and take me seriously, but there was this real sense that I was falling on deaf ears, that that uh, it was sort of like, if they'd had a hook, I think I would have gotten it. Um, and, uh, you know, they just kept coming up with reasons that I was mistaken or reasons that it was something else. Uh, they, they clearly were in very deep denial. There was a lot of uh, shoot the messenger sort of feeling. Uh, uh, and I had very little support in the room. Uh, I, I left feeling very despondent, like 
you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I was surprised, even even though I've been around a long time and I know people behave differently. Um, but I was I was surprised by their reaction. I, I didn't expect it. I expected them to at least consider it. Maybe not consider it as seriously as I'd hoped, but I didn't expect to be um, dismissed. And it was a very dismissive. Uh, I was marginalized. I was very aware that I was a woman, and I was talking to men who didn't believe me. It was a familiar feeling. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. It's a little depressing. Well, later that year, an internal NFL research document was leaked to the New York Times. It turns out an NFL commission study showed that former players had brain disorders at higher rates than the rest of the community. That sparked congressional hearings in October 2009, and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell could not answer the question, do concussions hurt pro football players? I just asked you a simple question. What's the answer? The answer is the medical experts are no better than I would with respect to that, but we are not treating that in any way and delaying anything that we do. We are reinforcing our commitment to make sure we make the safest possible uh, field for our... Okay, I've heard it. Shortly after those hearings, the NFL came up with new concussion rules, a new committee to study concussions, and finally admitted that concussions do have long-term effects on players. The NFL also gave Boston University a $1 million gift to study CTE. The tide had turned, but the research was only beginning. This episode of Thank You 72 is brought to you by Wisconsin Alumni Association Travel. With more than 40 amazing tours offered every year, your bucket list will runneth over with dream trips to take. Just look at what's coming up at uwalumni.com travel. Along with a wide array of destinations to choose from, WAA Travel takes care of all the details so you can enjoy the ride. And nothing compares to traveling with a group of Badgers. You'll make almost as many friends as memories. Begin your next journey now by visiting uwalumni.com slash travel. Now back to the Thank You 72 podcast. Once again, here's Todd Pritchard, Director of Media and Public Relations at the Wisconsin Alumni Association. We're speaking with UW grad and neuropathologist, Dr. Ann McKee. Again, doctor, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. So we want to kind of go forward now to 2010. And you started studying multiple cases. Tell us about a few that really were kind of landmarks to you that, that had the biggest impact on your research. Every time we look at a brain of a, uh, of a player who's died and we find CTE, uh, it teaches us. We learn from every brain, uh, no matter how old, uh, no matter what. So each of their stories is important. Uh, but I'll, some notable individuals are the ones that I got to know during life. And one of those was Kevin Turner, who first came to us uh, because he was having problems with cognition. He was in his late 30s. He was having, he just, he, he noticed he was making decisions that he wouldn't otherwise have made. He was considered himself a very fiscally conservative individual. He was making hundreds of thousands of dollars playing for uh, the Patriots. Uh, and then he found himself making very poor financial decisions and uh, sort of wasting away all his money. Uh, his, his, his marriage had declined. He was on the verge of divorce. And he just knew there was something wrong with his mind. So he first came to us uh, in his late 30s. But 
Then it was later, uh, in his early 40s, he developed motor neuron disease. And I had just published a paper on uh, uh, ALS in the setting of CTE uh, in three individuals. And uh, so when he decided to come see us, you know, I was immediately very concerned that that's what he had as well. Of course, you hope it isn't so, but ALS is a, a, a devastating diagnosis. People don't live much beyond five years, two to five years. And uh, there's nothing we can do about it. So uh, we watched Kevin decline. And over the years, he became progressively unable to care for himself and, and then died. Uh, he donated a brain to our, our, our science, and he had the most extraordinary example of CTE that you can possibly imagine in a player that was uh, 46 years old when he died. Uh, it, it just breaks your heart. You just, you, just, you just say to yourself, why aren't we doing more to prevent this? Uh, why, you know, we've got all these players playing now, some of them playing from early ages, like four and five years old, believe it or not, and uh, we just got to keep them safe. And that is doable. That is doable, but we have to want to do it. We have to stop pretending this disease doesn't exist. We have to stop arguing about the fine points and just take it on ourselves, have the leagues take on some responsibility for this. Uh, there will be solutions. There are solutions, but we have to want to find them. One of the solutions is when a player takes matters into his own hands, and that's what happened recently with, with Chris Borland. He's a former Wisconsin linebacker, um, incredible rookie season with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, but he decided to leave football to preserve his long-term health, and he did that because of your research. Yeah, um, and I think Chris Borland did the right thing. Uh, he's one of those extraordinary individuals who... Uh, decided to do something to really preserve his brain. Uh, and I, I just can't, I just think that's just the most courageous thing he could have done, uh, especially given, you know, the financial compensation of what he was doing, uh, sort of the, 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 the feeling that he's disowning something that's so popular. But for him, it was a courageous stance, and I'm just uh, so... So glad that he decided to take his future in his own hands. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about kids and football. And you now I'm the parent of a 12-year-old, and I know that every parent whose child wants to play football, in my son's case, it's hockey, um, has the same question, you know, are these contact sports safe for kids? And your most recent study indicates that children who play contact football before age 12 may suffer problems like CTE years earlier than other kids. Yeah, it suggests that they get the symptoms of CTE uh, years earlier. And it, it, you know, that's something that we've been studying for now a number of years, that the uh, that individuals who start to play tackle football before 12 have greater consequences in late life. We found that they have more emotional difficulties, more cognitive changes, uh, more depression, uh, and that they experience the symptoms of CTE if they develop CTE at a younger age, some 13 years younger. So we know that football damages brains, and we there's mounting evidence that it especially damages young brains. So I know it's 
it's maybe impossible to answer this question right now, but is there, do you have a recommendation on when kids could safely start to play contact football, tackle football? Well, with regard to football, uh, what I would recommend uh, is that they become physically mature. Now, I'm not giving it an absolute age, but there's a lot of technique involved in football. There's a skill set that you can acquire where you have less head contact than others. Uh, and if you train yourself properly, uh, neck strengthening, uh, there are ways to uh, lessen the amount of head contact uh, just by your individual playing style. And then I would like to see a player physically mature because when you're young, when you're relatively short, Uh, for your head size, because your brain is fully grown by age four, and you've got this heavy head on a thin, underdeveloped neck and a tiny little body, you're you're more likely to have head injuries, and you're more likely to take a long time to recover from them. So not only are children more vulnerable, uh, they don't recover as well, and they can have greater late-like consequences. So my advice is if you're dead set on playing football, that you play it when you're physically mature, and that's different for every individual. Um, Ice hockey, I I think they are doing a lot of things to uh, reduce the amount of head contact in hockey. It's not an intrinsic part of the sport. So we can eliminate a lot with rules and rule enforcement. Uh, we want our kids to play contact sports. We want our kids to play team sports. We know they're very important for their physical development, their psychological maturity. Uh, it, it, there's nothing that replaces the physical fitness of sport. Uh, and those are all things that encourage brain health. Uh, in fact, that's one of the best things you can do for your brain is maintain physical fitness. Uh, so we want to encourage kids in sport, uh, but we want to keep them safe at the same time. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to uh, your adult research for a moment. So at at this point, and I know the number changes all the time, but as we're recording this, how many brains have you examined? Well, it does change every week. We're getting brains there. You know, we took, we we had about 10 brains a year when I first started. uh, And those we had to go out and ask the families for. Uh, Now we're getting as many as two, two or more a day. Uh, they're coming in fast and furious. So we've got over 630 brains in in the brain bank. Uh, They're coming in so quickly that we're having difficulty keeping up with their analysis. We've analyzed about 470. Uh, We've found about 330 with CTE. We run about a 70 to 80% hit rate. Um, Everyone criticizes the brain bank for its selection bias. Uh, But the selection bias isn't as great as people would have you believe. Uh, Certainly people are more likely to donate the brain of a loved one if they were experiencing symptoms. But the people who are giving these brain donations and making them happen are ordinary citizens. The brain donors are very commonly not evaluated by medicine or medical individuals and have had not had a lot of laboratory tests. So these are your average citizen noticing something wrong in in their loved one and wanting their brain examined. Uh, uh, So to find the high percentage that we're finding, uh, 99% of NFL players, 91% of college players, uh, that says there's a public health problem. Uh, No amount of selection bias accounts for those those numbers. Do you suspect... Almost every football player has CTE? 
No, I don't, because I know we've seen uh, individuals without it, and we know of many cases where people are doing well. Uh, we see them in, later in life, and, and we see that they're doing well. Uh, but we do see it in a shockingly high percentage, I, what I would call an unacceptably high percentage. So whether the percentage of former NFL players is 10% or 90%, it doesn't matter. It's too many. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's something that, that accounts for that, that some players, you know, a lot of players get it, some players don't? Is it is it technique or is it genetics or, you know, what, what, are, your, what are your suspicions? Well, we're looking point? into all of those things, but um, uh, certainly genetics plays a role here. And we haven't, we are, we are just starting to understand the role genetics play. And we're finding that there's some variations in genes that uh, make it more likely that if you develop CTE, it will be pathologically severe. And conversely, we're looking at other genes that may make you relatively resistant to the disease. Uh, it, uh, genetics usually takes hundreds of, of, of cases, thousands, to really make concrete statements. So we're just at the point where we can start to identify genetic risk factors as well as uh, resistance factors. We certainly see cases where they've had a lot of head trauma and they don't have CTE. So what made those people resilient? Uh, there could be other factors from contributing things, heart disease, uh, for example. Cardiovascular health is often related to brain health, so there may be an interaction there. Uh, other, other environmental factors, potentially uh, stressors or uh, uh, substances or you know, other factors in their environment that may make them more likely to get it. We're looking at all of these things, uh, but I would say that if an individual has enough head trauma for a long enough period... I think almost everyone will get CTE. Where do you see your research going from here? What do you think the next steps are? So clearly the next step is identifying the disease in living. If we could identify it in living people, we can, first of all, establish the prevalence. How many kids have it? How many high school players? How many college players? How many uh, of, uh, professional players? So we'll have prevalence, and that will satisfy many of the critics. Uh, but more importantly, if we can detect it, we can monitor it. And if we can monitor it, we can treat it. There's many substances that may be helpful in the, in the prevention of disease or the lessening of the disease, but we don't have a way uh, to, to monitor the treatment, so we don't know if it's effective or not. If we have a diagnostic, we also have a way to evaluate treatment. Do you think we're months, years, decades away from that? I think we're at least years away from that because all of these uh, techniques, uh, developing a biomarker to, to diagnose it in the living, they have to be uh, very sensitive and very specific before they can be rolled out for, for general use. And that in itself takes years. Uh, you want to be very, very sure that you're not identifying it incorrectly in people that don't have it, and you want to uh, be sh very sure that you're detecting the exact disease that you're detecting. So uh, you don't roll it out until you've had a lot of uh, 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 tests and balances uh, to make sure that you're doing the right thing. So I'm thinking years, hopefully five years, maybe maybe longer. Dr. Amaki, you are um, really uh, a champion and a hero for a lot of folks. You're very courageous. Um, 
You've done a lot of great things, and we really appreciate you being on the podcast and explaining this to us and sharing your story. If there's one last thing, is there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to leave people with on on this disease? Well, since we're at the University of Wisconsin, I I, I would like to say that I I do think my being from Wisconsin makes a difference here. Uh, We're taught a truthfulness. Uh, We're taught taught an authenticity uh, that that really resonates, especially when the truth is unwelcome. And um, this is bad news. This isn't good news by any stretch of the imagination. It's nothing I wanted uh, to, to be true. But we're also practical people. We've got a problem. It's not going to go away unless we actually address it. And that's the sort of Wisconsin spirit that I think has really led me on this path. And you truly do embody that Wisconsin spirit. Dr. Ann McKee, thank you for being here on the podcast. By the end of 2019, McKee's CTE Center had amassed more than 700 brains. In new research, McKee and her team discovered a strong link between the amount of time a person plays football and the rising chance of acquiring chronic traumatic encephalopathy. For example, a player's risk of developing the disease increased by 30% for each year they played the sport. Organizations from Pop Warner to the WIAA, NCAA, and the NFL are all making rule changes and equipment changes in an effort to increase player safety. Thanks for listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. For more interviews with amazing UW alumni, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.